Take your Bible and open to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We continue our study in the sermon series, One Another, as we go from 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 16. And so we are in chapter 14 this morning. If you like to take notes or look at a little bit of structure for the sermon, you can turn over the bulletin to the back, and there's some structure there for you to be able to, to follow along with. Before we get into what we're doing this morning, a quick heads up about next week. Things will, will look a little bit different next week. What we are going to do for the first two weekends of March is in our lobby and our coffee bar area, we're going to have a ministry fair. Kind of an old school phrase, not even sure that's the right phrase, but what we're trying to get across is all the ways that you can be involved in ministry at Emmaus. We want to put those on display for you. So you can go by, you can sign up if you're interested in helping in a particular area. You can take an information card if you just want to have some more information about what it looks like to minister in that area, that you would be able to find a place, especially if you're new to Emmaus, maybe you haven't been around for a long time, you're looking for a way to connect, you're looking for a way to serve. These are going to be opportunities for you to do that. So also next week, we're going to have our friends from Hope is Alive. Hope is Alive is an addiction recovery ministry here in the state of Oklahoma, and they are getting ready in a couple of weeks to open their South Oklahoma City addiction recovery home. In addition to that, they provide a lot of resources for families who are facing addiction. And there are very few families in the state of Oklahoma who don't have that reality hitting home for them. And so Hope is Alive is a ministry that we partner with here at Emmaus, but they are doing a lot of work around the state. Lance Lane and those guys are doing some amazing ministry. And so they're going to be with us next Sunday morning. So next Sunday morning, nobody applaud, but it's going to be a very short sermon, and it's going to be a lot of Hope is Alive being here with us. And then we're going to cut out a few minutes early, not so you can go home early, but so that you have time to walk around the lobby and visit the ministry tables. And because we didn't have enough going on next Sunday morning, next Sunday morning also is when we do our Discover Emmaus lunch. And we really did that on purpose, wanting next Sunday to be the perfect opportunity for you to invite someone to come with you. They would be able to see Emmaus ministry on display in the lobby, be able to hear from one of our ministry partners, and then immediately after the service, attend a free lunch to meet the staff, hear some more about what's happening here at Emmaus. If you would like to be a part of that lunch, or you would like to invite someone to come with you, that Connect card that Jeff mentioned earlier at the beginning of the service, if you would just put your name on there and write lunch and put that in the offering plate at the end of the service, that helps us plan for that. Emmaus members, this is a perfect opportunity to bring somebody with you. They can get lunch afterward, meet staff, hear about the church, see these ministry tables. Um, so all of that's happening next week. But we're only promised today. <laughs> so today we're going to give ourselves to 1 Corinthians 14. We're going to give ourselves to the word of God, what it means to worship together. Now, most of you know that my family spent most of the last decade or so in New Orleans and along the Mississippi Gulf Coast. If you lived in that area, there's a good chance that you've gone on a swamp tour before. Uh, they take you out on this little boat, sometimes it's an airboat. They'll take you out there to see the alligators that don't really act like wild alligators. They, 
they come, if you've been on one of these swamp tours, they come right up to the boat and you feed the marshmallows and hot dogs and they practically pat the alligator on the top of the head and call them by name. Like these alligators live the best life of anybody on the planet because every few hours they have another boat coming by to feed them marshmallows and, uh, and hot dogs. And so you start to go through this area. But if you've been in that area, one thing you realize quickly is as you meander through these bayous, you can get disoriented very quickly. If you've ever seen swamp people on TV, that is real life, let me tell you. I mean, some of that's made up TV, but some of that, some of that is reality. I've met those people. I pastored some of those people when, uh, when we were down, down in that area, and it's a whole nother world. But when you get out there, you start to realize why NASA built one of their testing facilities in that area because there is so much open space. And you go through those swamps and one turn looks the same as the next turn and one tree looks the same as the next tree. And and you can get lost in the process. Sometimes you just have to back up and get the big view so you don't get lost in the middle of the swamp. I'm using that as a connection point to 1 Corinthians 14. There are some trees and some bayous in 1 Corinthians 14 that is easy to get lost in. And there are dangerous alligators in 1 Corinthians 14. Not baby alligators. There are dangerous alligators in 1 Corinthians 14. So what we're going to do is we're going to make our ways through the trees. We're going to try to navigate through this area and make sense of this passage. And then what I want to do at the end is I want to back up and give you the forest, give you the principles, give you the ideas that are going to apply across the board what it means to live the Christian life in 2018, what it means to be a part of a church. And so, trust me, we're going to go through the forest trying to navigate through these trees, and then we're going to back up and see the big picture. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Pursue love. And earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now verse 1 here, backing up to verse 1, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. We focused solely on that verse last week, talking about how the idea of pursuing love is meant to connect back to chapter 13, and it's all about the idea of the fruit of the Spirit, that God is shaping us by His Spirit from the inside out. Second half of verse 1, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. That points us forward. It points us into the middle of chapter 14. How do you desire these spiritual gifts in such a way that you're able to use them in a way that builds up the church? Verse 2, one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Now, depending on your church background, and and there's no requirement, I need to say this every week just to make sure we're perfectly clear, there is no requirement to have a church background to come in here and be a part of what's happening. If you don't have a church background, you bring a set of fresh eyes to God's word and what it means to gather for worship that that the rest of us can, can really benefit from. But if you have been a part of churches, or your family or extended family have been a part of churches before, 
depending on what kind of church you went to will depend on a lot on the perspective you take into this particular verse. If you've been a part of a church where speaking in tongues happen, you know what that looks like, you know what that feels like, you know some of the things surrounding that. If you're like me, and you grew up in a small, rural Southern Baptist church with wood paneling on the walls, uh, you didn't hear a lot about speaking in tongues, and you especially didn't hear speaking in tongues, and all you really knew is that's what the other people did who went to the other churches, and, and we don't do this. How, how do we make sense of this? Surprisingly, Paul is very straightforward in verse 2. He says, The one who speaks in a ton speaks not to men, but to God. If we can get that up front, that'll begin to clear the way for a lot of things that, that we'll run into here. That for Paul, when he was talking about these realities, these, these spiritual experiences of speaking in a tongue, it was not speaking to other people, it was expressing prayer or praise to God. Acts chapter 2, when you see the Spirit come at, at Pentecost and given to the people, they begin to speak in tongues, but they're declaring the great works of God. They're not speaking in tongues to one another as if they're using that to share the gospel. Tons is the way that they are praying and praising, especially in Acts chapter 2, praising God for his greatness, and other people are able to overhear that. In this situation, though, in 1 Corinthians 14, 2, he says, you're speaking not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. We're going to talk a little bit more in a second about what it really means when someone is speaking in tongues, what kind of language they're using. But here, the main point that Paul is making is when that happens, other people are not able naturally, automatically to understand what you're saying. Sometimes, and we want to be careful about this, let me encourage you not to do this. If you know people who have the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues, or they're a part of a church where it happens that people speak in tongues, let me encourage you not to mock or ridicule or, or make fun of that reality. Anytime we're mocking or ridiculing something that's mentioned in God's word, we're, we're walking on thin ice and we need to be very careful about that. Sometimes we'll laugh and just say they're just saying banana backward, and then you start to say banana backward and you start to practice and say, hey, look at me, I can speak in a ton too, just like you do. I just don't encourage that. I don't think that's the right way to address. People are not just saying banana backward. If someone is faking or mocking something that's of the Spirit, they have a lot of problems to take up with God at that point. That, that's not what's being talked about here. Paul is talking about this spiritual power, the spiritual enablement to be able to speak in a tongue, to speak in a way that other people can't understand, but you're speaking not to other people, you're speaking to God in praise and prayer. It goes on in verse 3. On the other hand, so Paul's going to contrast. There's something about speaking in tongues that he's going to make a contrast with here in verse 3. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to, to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Okay, verses 2 and 3 are so helpful. Verse 2, you're speaking to God in a way that other people cannot understand. Verse 3, you're speaking to other people for the purpose of building them up, of encouraging them, and consoling them. When we're talking here about prophecy, when some people think of a prophet, they think of someone who is angrily tearing down another person. And sometimes in Scripture, the Old Testament prophets, when they spoke, 
it was, as Jeremiah says, it was for the purpose of tearing down and rooting up. There was that that needed to happen. But with the coming of Christ, the role of the prophet seems to be primarily you speak into a situation or you speak into a person's life in order to build them up, to console them, to encourage them. So it's speaking to someone in a way that builds them up, not in a way that tears them down. And we have to be careful because when we think of prophets, sometimes we think of someone who speaks angrily or loudly to to tear someone down. That's not what's what's being addressed here. Verse 4, summary statement of verse 4. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, it is not wrong to build up yourself. Paul is, because Paul is going to tell us that he speaks in tongues more than almost anybody else there in the church. He is not saying that it is a bad thing to build up yourself. There are times where you need to be alone with the Lord, to be built up in the Lord. That, that's a good thing, and that happens in different ways. It's good that you are built up. But when you are gathered together with the church, and all you're concerned about is building yourself up, that's not a good thing. Paul says you are using something that's designed to build yourself up, and when you're gathering with other believers, you're not looking to one another to encourage one another and build up one another. So tons builds up the person, Prophecy, speaking the word of God into someone's life, builds up the church. It builds us up so we're strengthened together. Verse 6. Oh, wait, verse 5. Now I want you all to speak in tongues. So he's saying, I'm not saying not to do this. I'm not saying to set this aside. But even more to prophesy. Remember, the Corinthians thought the people who spoke in tongues were super spiritual. They were greater than everybody else. Paul's going to flip that on its head. He's going to say, that looks really super spiritual and great to you, but it's actually not as important as this gift of prophecy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Once again, what's Paul concerned about? Building up the church. That becomes the key theme that runs all throughout 1 Corinthians 14. Verse 6. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues... How will I benefit you unless I also bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Same concept being repeated over again. If I just come and all I'm doing when I come to church is I'm speaking to God in a way that nobody else can understand, what benefit? That might benefit me, but it's not going to benefit anybody around me. And so instead of that, Paul says, I'm going to come with a revelation, or knowledge, or prophecy, or teaching. Now this gets us into the deep, dark waters of trying to define what we mean when we say prophecy. I tried on the screen with a little indention here to set off some words. Revelation, or knowledge, prophecy, or teaching. Some Bible commentators, and I I really think there's something to this. I wouldn't press it too far. But I really think there's something to this, that revelation is meant to connect with prophecy, knowledge is meant to connect with teaching. So revelation or, or, revelation or knowledge, or prophecy or teaching, that Paul has set those words in such a way that revelation goes with prophecy, knowledge goes with teaching. Once again, it's not certain, I wouldn't press it too far, but I do think there's something to that, because prophecy is not the same as teaching. 
Teaching is passing along a body of instruction or wisdom from, from one group to the next. So in teaching, you're not trying to develop new material as much as you're trying to pass along the teaching of the apostles. You're trying to, ta- try again, you're trying to pass along what it means to live as a Christian, that that passing on of knowledge and accepted wisdom, that that's the task of teaching. Whereas prophecy is much more speaking the word of God into a particular situation or into a particular person's life because God is leading you to speak in that particular way. Said in a different way, teaching I take as a much more general practice where prophecy is much more specific, situational, contextual. It's much more speaking into a situation where teaching is passing on knowledge, passing on wisdom. Now, that seems simple enough on the surface, but woof, all kinds of things develop from that idea. Here's a couple of things to, to address. Question number one is, can prophecy be used to give new revelation? And that's, that phrase just scares me like crazy, and, I, and, I, and I'll tell you why. Sometimes that is used in Christianity. Someone says they're a prophet, and they have a new word from the Lord. I just want to say as straightforward as I can, we have a word from the Lord given, given to us in Scripture. We have the word of God given to us. And so if a prophet comes along and says that they have a new word from the Lord, all kinds of neon signs in your mind start to go off and sirens start to go off. And what you have at that point is you have a great opportunity for whatever the person says at that point can be tested against the word of God that has been given to us. And so if that prophet says something in that moment that doesn't match up with scripture, very quickly you know that that was not from the Lord. The idea sometimes is given that God has not given us enough in scripture. That you need a prophet to come along and to give you more information or more revelation. No, absolutely not. That we have in God's word everything that is sufficient for salvation, for sanctification, for all of living the life that God has called us to live. So no, I do not think that prophets come along and give new revelation in addition to Scripture. I do think that God enables by His Spirit people to be able to speak into a situation according to the Word of God. That God enables or empowers people to speak into a person's life according to the word of God. For what purpose? To tear them down? No. To encourage them, to console them, to build them up. The only time I've had this happen directly in my life might mirror what happened for some of you, especially if you grew up in a church where there was a lot of prophecy going on. Oftentimes, it was someone who was acting as the moral police in the church, and they used prophecy as their cover to be able to come in and tell, them, tell you that they had a prophetic word for you, and it was really them just kind of picking into your life, which, which is not at all what you see happening in Scripture. When I was in high school, uh, sitting with the youth group, we had a person come in to, uh, to preach. I think it was like a revival service, and this person said he had a word from the Lord, and it, he asked our pastor, hey, can I say something to someone in the congregation? And our pastor 
God bless him. He didn't, that was a lose-lose situation at, at that moment. And so this guy starts to walk down the aisle in, in church, and he's getting closer to me and closer to me. And it's one of those moments in your life you're thinking, oh, surely not. Like there is no way that he's coming to me. He's coming to me. He stops right, right in front of me, and he says, I have a word that I need to speak into your life. Well, he, he commences to tell me, remember, I'm a high school guy sitting with a youth group, providentially stuck on the end of the aisle for this guy to come down. And he speaks a word into my life about struggling with sexual temptation. <laughs> You're right. You know what? Ten points for your profit book. You're right. I do struggle with sexual temptation. I didn't know that before you showed up to tell me that in front of everybody, but really glad to know that I do struggle with that. You know what? I'm 36, and you can still make that prophecy about me because it's still true. Sometimes prophecies are used in that way that you think, what was the purpose? Did that build up anybody? Did that, did that reveal anybody? Did that say anything that, that wasn't said? Anybody could have walked down the aisle and said, hey, 16-year-old guy sitting on the end of the aisle, do you struggle with this? Of course you struggle with that. You know, it just, it misses the point entirely of what is being said with prophecy. Here is a question, though. Here's a question that really, really I think about a lot. Can prophecy be a gift from God to speak something into a person's life that the person saying that didn't already know about them? In other words, does God sometimes provide divine insight into a situation or a person and I have to say yes, just because I've seen it. Uh, just because I've heard stories firsthand from people who are highly respected and not the type of people to sensationalize situations. What you do not want to do is become the person who uses that as an opportunity just to walk up to people and start saying, hey, I think this is going on in, in your life. That just has danger written all over it. That becomes the person who says, I have a prophecy from the Lord that we're supposed to get married. Ah, and you're like, oh, I didn't get the same message from the Lord, but thanks for, uh, you know, thanks for sharing that. I do believe, I, and I, not everybody's going to follow me. I understand not everybody's going to follow me on this. I do believe that God's Spirit enables those moments of divine insight. And they're given for what purpose? For encouragement, for consolation, for building up. When you realize, oh my word, God is at work in a way that goes beyond anything I ever imagined. It's in accordance with the word of God. It's not providing revelation that is necessary for salvation or sanctification. It's just that God, by his spirit, has enabled something to happen that is meant to build up the church. So I do think there's a connection between revelation and prophecy, but I just want to be crystal clear that no prophet comes after the word of God to say, I have something else you need to hear. That is not what we're talking about here. Verse 7. Paul starts to give three illustrations to make sense of what he's going to talk about. He's going to begin to talk about speaking in tongues some more. Verse 7, If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? If I got up there and started to play what these guys played earlier, you would say, that was a really good try, Owen, but it didn't, it didn't sound like anything. You, you were just playing notes. There was, there was nothing to it. Paul says there's a way of doing something that it doesn't convey any meaning. Verse 8, he's going to use a military imagery here in verse 8. If the bugle designed to call 
the military to action, if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? The bugle plays, it's meant to convey an idea, it's meant to convey a meaning. Verse 9, so with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said, for you'll be speaking into the air? There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. Okay, that word foreigner up there, when you read out the Greek word, it sounds like our word barbarian. The word barbarian developed because it sounded like what they thought another person's language sounded like. Bar, 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 bar. That's where the word barbarian comes from. The Greeks had a very high esteem of what they felt like their own language sounded like, and so everybody who spoke another language was a barbarian. In our language, we would say blah, 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 blah. That's the same idea, that you're saying something but it doesn't convey any meaning. And so if that happens, instead of being connected to that person, you feel alienated from them. If you've ever been in a situation where everybody around you was speaking a language that you didn't understand, you feel extremely isolated in that situation. And you know they're talking about you, without a doubt, because they are all able to understand one another, and here you are in the middle and have no idea what's going on. Paul says that's what it feels like if everybody's speaking in tongues, and here you are, and you have no idea what's being said. Verse 12, so with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. There it is again. Verse 13, therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, he's going to turn around and talk about himself here for a second to make the, the argument not seem so harsh against them. He's going to talk about himself. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. There's another indication that speaking in tongues is in reference to prayer and praise. So my spirit prays, but, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. We talk about this a lot at Emmaus, but there's this division that happens in Christianity between word and spirit, mind and spirit. Some people are the very intellectual, let's just get to the sermon, let's read a book, I like to listen to bot radio. Other people are, I wanna listen to Air One, I wanna listen to more music, why can these guys not just play it all hour and you just sit down? We, we create these divisions between word and spirit, Paul wants no such division. He says, sometimes my spirit's engaged, but my mind's going to be engaged also. And I'm not going to engage my mind without my spirit being involved as well. Those two are always meant to go together. Verse 16, otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider? Okay, outsider is not the same word as barbarian. Outsider, our little kids are not in here anymore. If you read the Greek word out, it's the word idiot. And literally, it just means not knowing, unknowing, someone who doesn't know what's going on. Um, so that's the word, kind of where we get our English word for that. It just means literally ignorant, not, not, not knowing what's happening. How can someone who doesn't know what's going on say amen, agree with your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying? You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person's not being built up. Verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church... 
I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a ton. So if you've been a part of a church where there was chaotic speaking in tons happening, that's absolutely not in accordance with what 1 Corinthians 14 is talking about here. And Paul says, I speak in tons more than all of you do, but almost never does that happen in a public assembly. So if it doesn't happen there, what does it happen? Where, where does it happen? Almost assuredly in private. That this is a way that Paul speaks in praise and prayer to God, not to cause confusion when people are gathered together, but when he is alone with God. Not everybody's going to follow me on that particular interpretation. I realize that. The alligators are very ferocious, especially on the internet, uh, when you start to get into these particular topics. But I just don't know how else to read that other than Paul says, I speak in tongues more than all of you. It's for the purpose of praise and prayer to God, but I'm not going to do it in a public setting where it's going to cause confusion for people who don't know what's going on. Why? He goes from edification to evangelism in verse 21. Pick it up in 21. Why is Paul so concerned that people understand what's happening? In the law, and, and he's going to reference a passage from Isaiah. Sometimes the law means the first five books of the Bible. Sometimes the law is a reference to the full Old Testament, everything happening under the time of Moses before, before Christ would come. So in the law, he's going he's to reference Isaiah. By, the peop, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. What Paul is doing here is he's picking up an Old Testament passage from Isaiah 28, and he's talking about a time when God had spoken to his people in a way that they could understand, and they rejected his word, and they went their own way. And so what did God do? He sent in an outside army from another country. He sent in the Assyrians, and what did they do? They came speaking another language that the people of God could not understand. And so speaking another language here equals being invaded by a foreign army that came for what purpose? To judge the people of God. So don't miss this because this is going to be Paul's connection for the church. God spoke to you in a way that you could understand. You rejected his very clear word. So he judged you by sending a people to attack who spoke a different language. He, sent by, he judged you by sending the barbarians. You get to verse 23, or verse 22, I'm sorry. Verse 22. I'd like to skip 22 because it is by far the most difficult in the whole chapter, but 22. Thus tons are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. Sign of what? The first half of 22 Tons are a sign of judgment for unbelievers. Here's what would happen. If you came in to a gathering of Christians and you were not a Christian, and everyone was speaking in a way that you could not understand, you immediately feel alienated. Don't fit, have no idea what they're doing, no idea what they're saying, 
there might be something there for me, but I don't know how to access it because I can't understand it. When tongues were given by a foreign army in Isaiah 28, it was meant to judge the people of God. Paul says when you're speaking in a tongue in a Christian worship service, you are putting a judgment on someone who is not a Christian. You are forcing them away from the very source that they would come to hear the gospel, to hear the source of salvation. Don't do that. That's not the purpose given for this. Second half of 22, prophecy is a sign, not for unbelievers, but for believers. A sign of what? Well, we're not going to look at it directly, but Joel 2 and several other prophecies in the Old Testament would point to the time when the Spirit would be poured out that people would begin to prophesy, that the word of God would begin to be spoken. So a sign of prophecy happening among the church is a sign that God's spirit is at work there. Tons would be a sign of judgment because nobody can understand what's going on. Prophecy would be a sign of the work of the spirit because people are able to understand that. How do we know? Verse 23, if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tons and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say you're out of your minds? If you've been into a church where there was mass chaos and speaking in tongues and people doing things that seemed not spiritual, frankly, even though they claimed it was the work of the Spirit, you might have said these people are out of their mind. How much more someone who doesn't believe in Jesus comes into a situation like that and feels completely disoriented? Verse 24, But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. If someone comes into a worship gathering and they hear the word of God proclaimed, they see the word of God spoken from person to person to build up, to encourage, they see that divine insight happening, they'll begin to say, oh my word, There's something happening here that I do not have in my life. God's spirit is at work among these people, and I need that too. And they'll begin to be convicted, and they'll begin to turn to the Lord and begin to worship him. Paul's focus for prophecy is that people would be built up and that the gospel would be proclaimed clearly. That's his focus for the church. Okay, that's my best attempt to navigate through the swamp of of 1 Corinthians 14. Now, back up a little bit. What does this say to all of us? What does this say to every one of us gathered here? It says that when the Spirit of God is at work, Christ will be proclaimed. That the people of God who are experiencing the Spirit of God will speak the Word of God. Uh, You may have heard of a quote from an ancient Christian leader named St. Francis of Assisi. Uh, St. Francis was claimed to have said, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Problem is, St. Francis never said that. It doesn't show up in any of his writings, but it shows up on people's walls, it shows up on their Facebook posts, it shows up everywhere, and poor St. Francis gets dragged through the mud claiming that he wrote something, said something that there's no historical record that he ever said. Worse than that, it's a terrible Christian message to give off. Preach the gospel at all times and in necessary use words. The reality is that when the word of God 
is proclaimed, it's a sign that the Spirit of God is at work. And when the Spirit of God is at work, the Word of God is going to be spoken, going to be proclaimed. It's not something like, well, I'm just going to tell them with my life, and somebody else can tell them with their words. No, when the Spirit of God is at work, we will live for Him, and we will speak about Him. How do we know this? Every time in the book of Acts, practically every time, there may be one or two exceptions, where it's referred to that the people are filled with the Spirit, immediately after that, there's a reference to speaking. Let me run you through these really quick. We're not going to stop on any slides. We're, I just want you to see the big picture of how this happens. Acts 1.8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be my witnesses. With your life? Absolutely. With your words? Absolutely. 1.16, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. When the scripture is spoken, it's the Spirit doing the work. Keep going. Acts 2. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak. Acts 2.17. This is that Joel passage I mentioned earlier. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Acts 4. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. Acts 4.31. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Acts 7. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazes into heaven and he says. Keep going. Next slide. Acts 9. Ananias tells Saul, who will later be called Paul, you're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately Paul goes out and he proclaims Jesus in the synagogues. Acts 13, Saul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked at them and said, 13 again, disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So they went to the synagogue and they spoke in such a way that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. I think that's where the slides run out there. Yeah. When God's Spirit fills the people of God, they will speak according to the word of God. That is the reality that we see over and over and over again. At Emmaus, we say that we exist as a church to proclaim and display Jesus. That is why we are here, is to proclaim and display Jesus. Proclaim is what we do with our words. Display is what we do with our lives. When your life is filled with the Spirit of God, you will begin to speak about the things of Jesus to the people around you. How do we do this? How do we make sense of of 1 Corinthians 14 for our lives. Well, we also at Emmaus talk about up, in, and out. If, if you have a church background, up is worship, in is discipleship, out is missions, but we say up, in, and out. So what, we're, what are we going to do in response to God's word? We are going to speak up to God in praise and prayer. One of the things that struck me from 1 Corinthians 14, and this is a personal note. This is, this is nothing but just saying this is what I saw in my own heart when I was reading 1 Corinthians 14 this week. I was struck by how unemotional my private times with the Lord often are. That daily Bible reading time, prayer time, just to be frank with you, is often very engaged intellectually with my mind or as a, as a habit, something I do, but I can't say that my spirit is always fully engaged with that. Paul is telling them, I speak in tons. I, I'm speaking to God in prayer and praise all the time. My spirit is engaged. And we have to think about, if we are speaking up to God in prayer and praise, why the lack of our spirit engaged? Why the lack of emotion? Why the lack of giving ourselves fully to the Lord? When we are praising and praying, we are saying, we are declaring his works. We are, we are giving him thanks for all that he has done. We are giving our lives to him. And so often, whether it's gathered here 
for musical worship or whether it's just my private time with the Lord, maybe, you know, intellectually my mind is a little bit engaged, but, but is my spirit engaged? Am I engaged motion, emotionally at a deep level with what God's doing? In, we speak to Christians to build up. Sometimes God gives a special empowerment, enablement of the Spirit to prophesy, but there's a broad sense of prophecy that is simply speaking the Word of God to one another to build them up. Most of you know what it's like to experience where someone comes along and they say, there's something I want to share with you. Now, something I want to share with you is a much better phrase than God told me to tell you. <laughs> uh, God told me to tell you is very off-putting. He began to say, I don't know about that, but I feel like God is leading me to say something to you, and you're able to speak that into their life. There's a great test you can, you can do on yourself here. How does someone respond when they receive a text message or an email from me? Okay, so they see your name pop up in the text message from line or the email from line. What response happens in that person's life when they receive that from you? Do they think they want something from me? They're about to attack me. They have a problem. Or do they immediately think, I know that person cares about me. And they're going to encourage me. They're going to build me up. They're going to console me. They're going to speak God's word into my life in such a way that I can receive it. If everyone asks ourselves, we ask ourselves, how does someone respond when they receive something from me? It lets us know, are we really doing this work of building up one another? Are we speaking God's word? This happens in our small groups. Don't let your Sunday school class or your small group just become one person lecturing. Uh, you have enough of that when you come in here and listen to me speak for a long time uh, from the stage. Speak to one another. Speak God's word into one another's lives. And it doesn't have to just be in that small group time. It's as you're leaving this place. Sunday lunch can be the greatest time to prophesy, to say, you know, as we were sitting there, I just thought about what you're facing, and I want you to know that I care about you, and here's something in God's word that he showed me this week, and I think it would be really important for you to hear that, that God can use that. Finally, out. Paul's concern in 1 Corinthians 14 is that the people who come to church who are not believers, that they would be able to hear clearly the word of God. Are we inviting people? Are we investing in their life? And are we including them in such a way that they can understand what's going on? Nobody wants to be your spiritual project, but they do want to know that you care for them as a person. Nobody wants to be sold anything, but they do want to hear good news. We don't treat anybody as a project, and we're not trying to sell anything to anybody. We don't need to add to our numbers at church, but we do care for people, and we do want to share good news, and we want to do it in a way that people can understand what is happening. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, my main hope is you would come away and you would say, you know what, I may not believe everything that they saying about, I may not believe everything that that guy said, but I think I can understand what they were going for. And I can go and look at God's word and begin to ask questions about this. I know I can ask them. I know when the service is over, there are people I can approach and ask about what was happening. That's what we want to happen. And if you're a follower of Jesus, that you would commit, I'm going to worship him. I'm going to speak his word into others' lives to build them up. And I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that unbelievers are able to hear about the good news of Jesus. 
All right, here's what we're going to do wrapping up. Here in just a second, I'm going to pray for us. And after I pray, we're going to stand and we're going to sing a final song together. During that final song, our offering plates are going to go around. It's going to be a chance for you to give your offering and worship to the Lord. It's also a chance to put that Connect card. If you want to attend the lunch next week, you can put that card in there. We're going to sing this song, give ourselves fully to the Lord. Let me pray for us as we get ready to, to do that. Father, I pray that as we've tried to, to make our way through this chapter, or part of this chapter in the Bible, there's some hard things to understand. There's some things that seem very distant from us. But what doesn't seem very distant is my own heart when it comes to praying to you or praising you. What doesn't seem very distant is the friend in church who needs to be encouraged, who needs to be built up. What doesn't seem very distant is the neighbor who might not feel comfortable attending the church because they would feel like an outsider. Those things make sense to us, God. Those things come home. And I pray as we contemplate your word, as we sing this final psalm together, God, let us think deeply about our own lives. Are we speaking to you in prayer and praise and thanks? Are we speaking to one another in a way that builds them up and speaks the word of God into their lives? And are we doing everything we can to make sure that people are able to hear the good news of Jesus? God, we pray all the time that we want to see your spirit at work here at Emmaus. And the surest sign of that is when we are speaking about the good news of Jesus to one another and we are speaking about the good news of Jesus to the world. God, you reign. Christ is risen. He is our hope. And so as the church, we will proclaim that, God, with all that we have. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.